I, I, I suspect that what has happened with those, so there's, there's two kinds of, it's simplistic to say it, but there's two kinds of religiosity. William James, I think, mm-hmm. hits the snail on the head with, with, with that. I like that phrase, hits the snail on the head. <laughs> um, and, uh, talking like me and here. That, yeah, and that, and that is the religion of healthy mindedness and the religion of the sick soul. And those Ooh. two and those two sets of religiosity are quite qualitatively different. And the religion of healthy mindedness tends to be, you know, that you you're normally born into it and you believe all of the, 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 the different ideas and whatever. And, and that's associated with being a high in agreeableness, with high high in conscientiousness, uh, and high and low in mental instability, so highly mentally stable. Mm. And those associations, at least the association between really sorry. And, and mental health seems to be genetic in nature. There was a study by a guy called Koenig, and they could find no environmental reason why this was the case. Now, the religion of the sick soul, that's quite different. That's the religion of the convert. And mm-hmm. that is associated with the, the opposite personality profile, basically, and in particular with high neuroticism. Would you like to know more? Hello, Simone. It is wonderful to have you here today. And today we have a very special guest, Jolly Heredek or Ed Dutton, or Professor Dutton, I'm sure I would guess 80% of our followers probably also follow you or know broadly your work. He's very well known for controversial, much more controversial than us, mind you, takes within the field of human genetics and human evolution. But today we're going to be talking about another shared interest, which is the failure of the education system. I'm gonna try to do the I can only count to four song. Which our son is obsessed with. Wait, have um, you seen this? No, sorry, no. It's a song where they redid the bodies floor. hit the floor. Yeah. yeah, let the bodies hit the floor, but it's Sesame Street. But I want to hear your thesis on where the educational system has gone wrong and sort of the thesis that you lay out in this recent book that you laid out, while also giving the title of the book and where listeners can find it. Yes. So the book is called The The Naked Classroom, The Evolutionary Psychology of Your Time at School. And I, I published it on Amazon KDP. It's, uh, it's quite a short book. And basically, I suppose it's a sort of introduction to based science. And I was, I, that's what someone suggested I should do. And as you know, I don't have a formal quali- a science qualification. I, I'm an honorary professor of, of uh, psychology of various places. But I don't. I, I was always at school a humanities person. I very quickly came to the, to the conclusion that science is boring. I could see no benefit in science. You know, his history. I could look around England. I lived near Hampton Court Palace, and you know, I could imagine the kings and queens of England walking there and their ghosts that haunt the place at night. You know, English literature. If you wanted to go back in time and know how they spoke, you could read. I don't know the works of Thomas Hardy, and there you are immersed in the nineteenth century. Even geography. You know how a river's formed or whatever. But how flowers us have sex or even when I was you know, at school, how humans have sex was not really of interest to me, and I, and I, I just thought I just, I just thought it was it was terribly terribly badly taught, mm-hmm. and so and I think that, that that's the fundamental problem that you quite quickly divide between being a humanities person and a science person at school, and when you do that, then the ignorance of science and scientific concepts and scientific thinking among and mathematical thinking among humanities people can be quite staggering. 
So, for example, I there was a, a video I did recently that of British <laughs> members of parliament, more than half of British members of parliament, thought that the probability, if you toss a coin, of getting heads uh, rather than tails is half. But if yeah. you toss it twice, they also thought it was half. I thought I'd offer some clarification on what he meant by this statement. Because it, it, it's so dumb, you wouldn't expect it to mean what it actually means, which is... They were asked, if you flip a coin, what's the probability it turns out on head? And then they were asked, if you flip a coin twice, what is the probability it comes up on heads twice? These people thought that there was a 50% probability that it came up on heads twice and a 50% probability that it came up on heads individually. Now, that's obviously wrong. And, and that is it's so obviously wrong. And somebody gave me an example today. They said, well, that's not a sign of stupidity. I've got a friend who's got a PhD in whatever, and she got that wrong. I'm like, no, right, that's the problem. So science is, is, <laughs> science is, not, is not integrated into the curriculum. It's not taught in an interesting way. And it yeah. struck me that everything was based in science, because it should be. I mean, ultimately, there's this idea of, of E.O. Wilson, consilience, the idea that every... Yeah. If you make an assertion in sociology, it has to be reducible to psychology. If you make it in psychology, it has to be reducible to biology. If you make it in biology, it has to be reducible to chemistry. That's and, and so if, if, if it was taught in that way, then first of all, a lot of questions that are unanswered in humanity subjects would be parsimoniously answered. For example, I always thought to myself when I was younger, well, why was it that people in World War One were prepared to lay down their lives for their country and die? But we're not prepared to now. What's what's changed? Why is what what why is it that people? That's an interesting question. Right. Mm. Why is it that you get these people that would be prepared to burn, be burnt at the stake? But then, what possible? Have they gone mad? You know, but that wasn't answered. You just learn the information, and then you write your essay, and you get your A, and whatever. Mm. But uh, so the first of all, I think it should be reduced down. All these questions need to be answered in a scientific way. And secondly, uh, the, and the other, the other thing I thought was, well, think of all the questions that you ask when, 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 you, when you're at school, all the things that are going to occur to you when you're at school. Like, why are so many of the teachers women? Why, 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 yeah. why, do, why do some boys give women the ick and they find them disgusting? What, 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 why is, what, why is, why is, why is some people having sex with the teacher? Why are the science teachers often male? Why are teachers so left wing? Hmm. Um, why are so many male teachers gay? Why, you know, frankly, when I was at school, when a lot of people were at school, why were there some teachers, male teachers that were a bit, you know? Yeah, I, if, <laughs> even if you had done a degree in science, they wouldn't have touched on these issues. They wouldn't no. have touched on these issues, no. no. So, so I, 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 and these are the things that are going to fascinate you at school. Why is it that girls have these cliques at school that are complete bitches to each other, you know? Um, 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 why, why, why is there this anorexia and lesbianism and tra transsexuality among girls? Why, why do the kids that are that are retarded, like literally look physically different. All of these kinds of these these these, these kinds of questions. And so it struck me that, uh, that that could that could get kids into science if you understand that the base questions that you're going to ask at school, and if other subjects are reduced down to the science, then you realise the importance of science. That science could really answer yep. parsimoniously all of these questions, and therefore you don't make the mistake which so many of us make, which is at a young age, really quite a young age, to just stop thinking in a scientific way. I mean, when I did my theology degree, and you try to understand what causes some people to be religious and others not to be, right? I, I was in my late 20s, like six years after I got my degree, when I found this information indicating that there was a genetic component to religion. 
It had never occurred to me, and it had seemingly never occurred to any of the people that taught me at Durham University or whatever, that, yeah. that you, you just didn't look at these things. They were separate subjects. So that was the idea with the book, basically, to show that science needs to be based, it needs to be taught in a based way. You can do this by uh, showing its relevance to other subjects and almost just by showing its relevance to your life at school, answering the question scientifically that you might have thought about at school. It seems I, like I, all the things that like a little kid is not allowed. Like if if the little kid says like, "Why is this? Why is that?" and the mom's like, "Shh," it, that's yeah, what that's what science should be about. That's an idea. Those no, to go back to school, put your tar if it's an English school, not an American school. Put your tar at a jaunty angle. Put your satchel on. Go back to school and and look at these questions that would have occurred to you at school. Well, that was the idea. I, I want to pull on two of these ideas you talked about because they're things that we haven't talked about on the show yet. And I don't think some of the stuff that you talked about, I think generically, if people are familiar with like manosphere stuff or they're familiar with like genetic nerd stuff, they're going to have some vague idea of what the answers are going to be. But other things you mentioned, I don't even see talked about in these communities and they're really interesting. One of them that is is being able to predict people's personality and things like their level of testosterone based on their facial characteristics. Yeah, um, yeah, I think people would be really surprised the extent to which humans can accurately do that. It, yeah, you're going to say... Well, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, a, then what's more interesting now is the extent to which AI can do it. Yeah, which is which is which is way way beyond what yeah. humans can do. But yeah, because of course it's it's adaptive, isn't it? We we are a social animal, so it's inherently going to be adaptive to be able to make correct judgments from appearances. Now at the same time, it's also going to be adaptive to be able to evolve in such a way as to mask whatever it is that is suboptimal about you with an appearance which tells which doesn't indicate to people that's the case. So there's going to be a kind yeah. of arms race all the time. Whereas on the on the one hand you're going to be you're going to be evolving to be able to accurately judge by appearances. And on the other hand, you're going to be evolving to not be accurately judged by appearances. So you know you can you can get around those problems and that kind of thing. So but what we end up with is that certainly a level of a, a I look at this in a, an earlier book I did called How to Judge People by What They Look Like. Yeah. Um, but I, I also look at this again with regards to school in, in the new book, is that, is that with a, a level that is significantly exceeds chance, mm -hmm. we, can, we can note intelligence from appearance, we can, particularly the face, because the, the face is a, a huge number of genes involved in the face, so it's, yeah. it's a very good indicator of basically, you know, your, your level of genetic health or whatever, and, and, and personality. And a good, I mean, a good example, it, it doesn't sound very pleasant to put it like this, but if you think about what is an example of a low intelligence person? Well, it's a person with Down syndrome. Now that's low. Now that's low intelligence beyond the normal range. That's outside the normal mm -hmm. range. These people have an IQ of about. It depends on the severity of the condition, but they have an IQ of between 100 and uh, 50, something like that. But often about sort of 60, something like that. So it's it's way out, it's way out of the normal range, which is 70 to 100, 130. And what you see there is that the, the the developmental pathways have been interfered with at a very young age, you know, at a, a very young age of development. And this has predictable results in what they look like, i.e. Mm. they have small no they have small noses, they have Sort of short faces, they have narrow eyes, and they have various examples of, uh, of of minor physical abnormalities and whatever in in the face. Now it follows from that that if that, that you're going to get um, that in a much diluted form among uh, among people that have low intelligence within the normal range, and you're going to get the opposite of that among people that have high intelligence. And that's exactly what we see. But you're saying that smart people have giant schnozzes. 
So, <laughs> oh, Samoan, I think you're getting into that's that's no, no, that would that that would if it was a giant schnoz as as, as you put it, that would perhaps be a mutation, and mutational load tends to be associated with low IQ. Yes. But, mm. but, but within the normal range, the the studies indicate that being intelligent is associated with having a longer face, with having a narrower face, with having you know basically a more horsey-like face, a more kind of <laughs> yeah. quarter she's lovely but you know what i mean and so things they, like they, bitchy they, resting they, face they, may they, just be a sign that someone's a bitch one of the, <laughs> the, the, the and also the pupil size at rest is larger eye eyes are larger pupil size at rest is larger which really, makes sense people because are more intelligent, they like have the, a base level of more more interest in their environment exactly exactly so the i mean what is intelligence intelligence is solving problems what is the pupil it's the interface between the world and the brain and so it follows that you're going to you're going to have uh, a base level, a larger pupil. And also, I mean, I know you both yeah. wear glasses. Well, I, I think Simone does so for pretentious reasons. But one of the one of the one of the indicators of intelligence is short sightedness. And the, the, the there's a weak correlation. And the reason for that is that the eye is part of the brain. So obviously, if you've if you've got a bigger brain, your eyes are more kind of convex, basically, and so they're pushed out, and so you're short sighted. Obviously, these things only work within race. You can't make those kinds of assertions in, between race, but with that that's the that's the face, yeah. And there's other things, personality as well. Fun fun sciency divergence here. So we were talking about the the pupils, right? And so somebody's pupils being at because they might not understand the implications of what I was saying there. Somebody's pupils being constantly dilated. Typically, your pupils dilate when you're showing interest in something. And and we even have a natural response when somebody's pupils dilate when they're talking to us to believe that they like us more. And this is why the deadly nightshade's scientific name is Tropa Belladonna, the beautiful woman. It's because it used to be used. You'd put little droplets of it in your eye before you would go on a date with somebody. Women would do this and it would paralyze some of the muscles in the eye and cause cause the pupils to dilate an extra large amount. So they'd look like little, you know, anime girls. And so what you're literally seeing is more persistent interest in their environments in, in this intelligent group, which is really interesting. Within the face category, one of the jokes we persistently make on the show, because I think just as a scientist, it really jumps out to you. And again, we have nothing against Andrew Tate, but his face is, if you're familiar with face models, almost the cliche of uh, somebody who developed in a very low testosterone environment. It's a very, very low testosterone phase. And it's really interesting that that's so antagonistic to his brand. And we point out that likely now he's high testosterone because of his lifestyle, because he's sleeping around a lot, which increases testosterone, because he's living with competitive males, which increases testosterone, not that he's a naturally high testosterone person. And in many ways, that's almost better. You know, he, he got to it honestly, rather than by birth. But the other thing you touched on that I really want to pull on, because I think that it's really interesting too, is I totally forgot what it was. Let's, let's talk about the teacher one. That, that could be an interesting one to d dig into. Yeah, but why, why are teachers disproportionately women? That would be an interesting one. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the more obvious ones, isn't it? I mean, it's a it's a very interesting process. Basically, you if you open up a profession to women, and it's the kind of which it wasn't previously, and that is the kind of profession that is attractive to women, then it becomes overwhelmingly female very quickly because women are within apart from that. There's out women males have more outliers, both in terms of low IQ people and high IQ people, and a, a slight IQ advantage in adulthood. But basically, intelligence is about the same, and uh, women are higher in conscientiousness, higher in rule following, and 
harder working, basically, and, and higher in agreeableness and things like this. And so this means that they will get, be able to get into that profession that they want to get into, particularly if it's not particularly intellectually challenging. Obviously, they're higher in a, a general desire to look after children and be with children. So they're attracted to that profession. And then they get into that profession. And then you get more and more and more women teachers. And then at some sort of tipping point, it becomes seen as a kind of a girl's game as yeah. Jordan Peterson summarised it. Hmm. And then when it's seen as a girl's game, then it loses status. It loses status and the salary goes down, commensurate to other professions, and hmm. then men stop being interested in it. And then it becomes even more of a female profession. And at the moment it, in England, it's something like 65% of secondary school teachers are women and about 85% of primary school. So you're really, really hmm. young kids are women. And that's just going to go up. Yeah. And then when we, when in the book I did in the, the Naked Classroom, when you interview men who are teachers and you, well, why, why, why have you got into teaching? They basically come across as quite unambitious men. Huh. Just, oh, I've, I've, I've got into teaching. I've got my degree in whatever history, and I've got into teaching because you get long holidays. It's good. You know, I've got, I've, I've got into teaching because I can spend my time doing my hobbies in the holidays, and, the, and it's a sort of stable job and whatever. So they're not very, they're not very ambitious kind of men. And, and it's just overwhelmingly female. And it's an evolutionary mismatch. It is clearly an evolutionary mismatch in all societies for young women in their early 20s to be hanging around 16-year-old boys, 17-year-old boys, 18-year-old boys. That's just not the, how it's supposed to work. It's not how it's done in any tribal society. No. You know, boys of that age are taken away from the society. They go through uh, their rite of passage. They become men. They come back. This is their rite of passage. And the instructors are, are women. So naturally, you're going to end up with relationships between the boys and the yeah. teachers, as you do. I've, I've heard an interesting theory around this, that one of the reasons why education rates rose so much for a period is because teachers were one of the only jobs available to women. and Respectable jobs. Yeah, respectable jobs available to women, which meant that for a, a low price, below market, what you could get somebody of that competence level, we were able to get many of the most competent women in our this society. Is, is absolutely true. And I look at this in the book, it's in, in the, the Naked Classroom, it's very interesting, this. It seems to me the standard of teachers has gone, the standard, the quality of teachers has gone mm -hmm. down precipitously for a number of reasons. First mm -hmm. of all, it's lost prestige. It's just lost prestige. And so men in the old days, like my RE teacher, Mr. Sutton, who was highly intelligent, you know, that yeah. would, would uh, that would go into teaching they're not going to do that now. They're going to they're going to go somewhere else. Secondly, we have a more meritocratic society. So you can imagine a situation where a person who was born into the working class or something like that, and he goes to grammar school and he becomes a, a school teacher. There's no there's even though he's probably sufficiently intelligent to become I don't know an academic in whatever subject he teaches, but it's not a very very meritocratic society. So he's not going to do that. He's going to become a school teacher. That person mm -hmm. these days is more likely to become an academic, particularly as well considering the expansion of, of higher education in in tandem with that. So he's eliminated yeah. and then with the women of course i mean i had a teacher at school and she was a very intelligent woman she wanted to be a lawyer and they said to her this is in the 50th in the 40s of course you can't be a lawyer a girl so 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 she became an english teacher now that generation of women that became teachers they're, they're gone and the right. women that are capable of becoming lawyers or doctors or whatever are likely to become that right. whereas in the old days they would have become a school teacher so you're right you're quite right you would we probably had a substantial period of time where yeah. you have women that were quite good that were going into teaching, and now they're not. You know, it's just going to be overwhelmingly midwit types that go into Yeah, teaching. unfortunately, this is not unlike what a lot of people think, something that you can easily fix just by, like, raising teacher salaries or something like that. Right. Like, the boat has already sailed. You would need to have a major cultural shift or just replace the profession, which is what we're trying to do as our institution. Well, it's a good point you make there, because studies indicate this whole idea of would raise the salary, raise the salary. There's a lot of evidence that indicates that people will trade money for prestige. 
Mm-hmm. So the the, the uh, problem is, is not it's it's the prestige. It's got low prestige. Right, right. And, and, and once it's got once it's got low, I mean, you could. It's like oh, people are under being a plumber. You can earn way more being a plumber than you can being a school teacher or whatever. But it has lower prestige. Well, yeah. being a school teacher has got to that point because it's so female dominated. Because it, various, it's there's this exodus of high quality people from it. But it's just got low prestige. And I don't know how the. It's very hard to reverse that. I think. That's really interesting. Another thing when we talk about men and women having different biological tendencies in terms of the types of jobs they take, that is actually really important from the perspective of pronatalist advocacy. And there was a great piece called The Baby Boom by Arctotherium that we did an episode on recently. I don't know if you read this. It was in Aporia, where he basically argued a strategy that you could use to help fertility rates is to lower the amount of bureaucratic jobs within the government, because (laughs) those are predominantly held by women because they Mm -hmm. disproportionately take those jobs, which would allow and, and put pressure on people to be more, you know, stay-at-home moms. It's an interesting theory. Well, and it, it wasn't just that. It wasn't like, let's force stay-at-home motherhood. It's let's give men the ability to be higher in status than women because women won't get married if they don't have access to higher status than the men. So that was like the bigger thing. It's like, how do we enable men to have relatively higher status than women? And a lot of that involves reducing the extent to which women have an unfair advantage in really, really common and major like job segments. One thing I wanted to ask you, though, is if you've read, uh, you probably have Paul Lockhart's A Mathematician's Lament, because it really changed how I looked at mathematics. And like sort of to like recap it for people who haven't read this essay, basically, Paul Lockhart argues that we teach mathematics to kids as though for the entire like grade school, middle school, high school experience until you hit college, you're basically only studying grammar. You're not allowed to write a sentence. You're not allowed to like read books or discuss literature or build narratives. You're only allowed to just look at grammar and punctuation and the rules and it's terrible and you hate it and it ruins math for everyone. And that's why people hate math. And what really math is all about is imagination and and sort of building imaginary worlds and constraints and seeing how things behave with those constraints. What would be the equivalent of applying this kind of reasoning? That's um, what I argue in the book. I said, why don't the schools teach pure, like, logical thinking? So just usable, usable stuff, the fun fun stuff. That's usable maths. I can only think of a few times when I did maths at school where there was, for example, there was one, I mentioned this in the book, where there was one, a test we did called SAT when you were 14. And there was this question where you had to, there was a wardrobe and you had to work out if you could get it out of the door. You were given given the proportions and you were given the, the, and I realised, ah, Pythagoras theorem, that will solve that. And, and And that's the, that will give me the answer. And that's the one time in my life, and that was in a math test, not a real life situation where Pythagoras theorem came, you know, became useful. And so I think that what they, you're right. I think they are what mathematics teaches you at school is the is the sort of the grammar, as, as I said, the grammar. And I think you can go a level further than that and just take that down to the, the level of logic, of of formal logic, obviously, and and then of informal logic. And when I was doing my maths GCSE, that was the height of new labour. That was the height of all of this emotional nonsense, you know, new labour, new Britain, all this. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be good if they had sat us down and said, look, boys, we've got this political party saying new labour, new Britain. That's a fallacy. OK, mm-hmm. the, fact, the fact that the party is called new labour, it does not follow and it cannot follow that it's going to renew Britain. That's insane. And there were and there were many other examples of these kinds of manipulative slogans that I think you could ultimately be reduced down to basically something like maths. 
basically formal or informal logic. And if, and if you teach kids that, if you teach kids the benefit of, of, of informal logic and then a formal logic, then they can start to understand the benefit of maths because it's an extension of that, basically. And then they can start to see the math is not just some boring grammar. It's actually extremely important and vital to mm. everything. That's not, it's not taught in that way. It's not taught in a way that is useful. It's like teaching languages. The new modern way that you teach a language, I think, is an improvement. In uh, when they you, you can you can teach French by teaching everybody the grammar and stuff like this, or you oh. can just, just immerse them in it and say, okay, here's some French, get on with right. it. Yeah. And that's what they should do with maths. So, so I remembered the thing I wanted to talk about, which was the genetics of religion. Oh, oh yes, this is a very interesting topic, and it is really undersold one how heritable religiosity is, but a really interesting phenomenon. And for us, this was what actually drove us on our path to pronatalism is we had originally thought that what was being selected for, like the way humanity was changing, was that people were being selected to be higher levels of religiosity. And then when we looked at the data, this doesn't appear to be what's actually happening. And it's really interesting, which is the historic research. And you're one of the few people who's going to immediately be like, oh, yes, I've seen this phenomenon. When it looked at the religiosity and, and heritability, it would always point out it, it does not determine what religion you are, just your fervor in terms of how much you follow that religion. And it looks like this fervor, like this genetic fervor for religion, is not protective of the religion that people are born into. And this is why when you look at the new atheist community, which you were, you know, on the edge of i think along with us for a while a lot like disproportionately they were incredibly fervent within their religion before deconverting and joining the movement it was not that they were like loosey-goosey religious types they were like extremely religious types well i don't i don't know if that, that's necessarily a good example of people that are pronatal though no, 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 it's not. But it's but it's interesting because historically, this genetic fervor for religion kept people within their cultural group, but just right. made them extreme advocates of that cultural group. Yeah, well, well that yeah, I, I I suspect that what has happened with those. So there's there's two kinds of. It's simplistic to say it, but there's two kinds of religiosity. William James, I think. It's the snail on the head with the, with the, with that. I like that phrase. It's the snail. On the head. <laughs> um, and, uh, I'm talking like me here. Yeah, and that and that is the religion of healthy mindedness and the religion of the sick soul. And those Ooh. two and those two sets of religiosity are quite qualitatively different. And the religion of healthy mindedness tends to be, you know, that you you're, you're normally born into it and you believe all of the the, the the different ideas and whatever. And and that's associated with being a high in agreeableness, with high high in conscientiousness, uh, and high and low in mental instability so highly mentally stable and mm. those associations at least the association between really sorry and and mental health seems to be genetic in nature there was a study by a guy called koenig and they could find no environmental reason why this was the case now the religion of the sick soul that's quite different that's the religion of the convert and mm. that is associated with relatively the opposite personality profile basically and in particular with high neuroticism so be going through a period of religious fervor really extreme really extreme religiousness mm -hmm. or changing religion so that is to say ec extrinsic religiousness socially conformist religiousness as opposed to intrinsic and going through a period of religious fervor i.e a conversion that's associated with mental instability and so there's no reason what you would actually expect is that you would get people that if they had, let's say, something like uh, one of the things that's associated with mental instability is like borderline personality, where you have a, a weak sense of self and you, you're very fickle and changeable and you fundamentally fear abandonment and you have feel 
feelings very strongly and these these kinds of things. And so you and, and you can see that someone like that could have a dramatic conversion experience where they would move from being extreme in terms of let's say being a Christian fundamentalist Christian to being extreme in terms of being an atheist or vice versa. And I, I know of many, many cases of this, but I would expect that personality type to a certain extent to be associated with just general sickness, just sort of problems, mental illness and physical illness. It's the religion of the healthy mindedness that's more more interesting uh, because that mm. seems to be associated with fertility and that mm. seems to be associated with with you know, the pro-social nature and, and, and so on. But yeah, there's a, there's a definite distinction between those two. And it's very, it was very interesting when I was at university, I did my research and I think about the kind of people that converted one way or the other. And it was always, as you say, to the most extreme manifestation. I can think of one example, person fundamentalist Christian, and now it's like she just hates God and God doesn't exist and, and, and it's, it's, it's just totally woke. And that seems to me to betoken, you, you can think of a sort of a, a religious bundle that we were selected for, a bundle of traits yeah. that, that is religiousness that then come together and become pleiotropically related and then are, are, are associated with other things which are adaptive as well, such as uh, mental health and physical health and uh, pronatalism and, and, and whatever. And they all become bundled together. And equally, you, can, you would think that if any deviation from that would be associated with negative things. And I think that you have, if you have the breakup of the religious bundle, i.e. you have one element of it, i.e. extreme fervor and desire for black and white certainty, for example, whether you get that from trad Catholicism or you get that from wokeness, but you get it from somewhere, and 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 it's and you can move between the two as as you as your sense of self is weak and oh this isn't working break down or maybe this. And and you think these are two different genetic clusters and one's being sort of bred out of the population. I yeah I would the what I my reading is that the the, the personality involved is so different from that it's so fundamentally different that you're, you're you're dealing with two separate kinds of two separate kinds of people i mean there's all kinds of nuance of course you're going to get some people that are converts and are religiously fervent and therefore have loads of kids or, or, yeah. or whatever but my, my understanding is that neuroticism tends to be negatively associated with fertility except in certain subsections of it uh, and and so so you know overall i would think they would be quite separate i mean one thing for example that could predict uh, conversion and having being a fundamentalist Christian, for example, would be some kinds of narcissism. So borderline personality predicts dramatic changes in the nature of the self. Uh, one um, example of a kind of borderline personality is narcissism. Um, and some kinds of narcissism are positively associated with having children. Quite why I'm not sure. I don't know what, if the mediating factor is socioeconomic. It could be that, we, to some extent, we still look up to those that have children. And so, if you're narcissistic, you want to have lots of them. I don't know. It, I mean, it might be within specific sub communities. I mean, I'm thinking now about like the eight passengers lady and stuff like that. When children are a status symbol within their community, which yeah, is insert any or, mommy blogger, like kids are good props in many cases. That's right. We found, I mean, we've got a study at the moment we're doing, we found a number, a number of indicators that among Mormons, there is a eugenic, among white Mormons in America, there is a eugenic fertility because more intelligent people tend to be more socially conformist. And in that community, it's pronatal. And so and therefore you want to have kids to show that God is, Heavenly Father is blessing you or whatever. And oh, so more people do that. Sorry. 
I'm going to unpack what you said there just because I think what he's saying is that if you look within most communities and most cultural groups in the world right now, you have what is called dysgenic fertility, which means that they are selecting for traits that we would think of as non-competitive traits, i.e. low IQ and stuff like that, but that lead to higher competitive within reproductive markets within our existing socioeconomic condition. He's saying within this one rare community, there is, and I've seen the studies on this, there's a very slight eugenic effect, but yeah. a eugenic effect within these Mormon communities. Communities. But this has been a great way to end this episode. And I really would encourage people to check out this book if you liked some of the topics that he was talking about. The or, naked uh, what's, the, what's the word that I'm looking for here? Dissident science is, is what I call it. Real science. The last real science that's left. And it has been great to have you on. And we would love to have you on in the future. Great. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, and do check out his podcast as well, Jolly Heretic. Or yes, YouTube yeah. channel or whatever. The Jolly Heretic. All right. Speaking of people who really sex up science well, acapella science, I have just had one of their songs stuck in my head recently, so I have to uh, share a little clip from them to, to share the, the infection with you guys. And if you want, after this clip, I'm going to have a sort of an outtake from us just chatting with Ed. We are built of modules combined in a planned out way. Each new piece must be told where to go. Oh, now there's a science helping us to understand how our cells encode this architectural plan, signaling each other with genetic tools. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. Phenotype the interface for mouse and man. Genotype the files and the subprograms. What then are the switches, circuit boards, and root code? Looking at the logic in the ways that we grow Every gene directed by a signal key code Proteins that can activate enhance or veto Evo Diva The signals are controlled by other genes that signal Calculating in a network labyrinth Where the heart and liver and the hands and feet go Boxing Day, really. Oh. And this is sort of second Boxing Day. So, wow. What are we supposed to be doing on Boxing Day? Yeah, I can't remember. Well, traditionally, isn't it that you you fill boxes with meats for the for the for the, the downtrodden of the community and leave them outside, <laughs> and then there's oh. the boxes. That's why it's called Boxing. That's my understanding. Oh, that's what lovely the thought. I can see why we forgot about this. Hold on, there's a toy in the background that I definitely need to turn off. But my, my wife, my wife got me this cravat, which I was quite pleased with. Oh, so that's a Christmas cravat. That's a Christmas. That's a Christmas cravat. Yeah. Christmas that cravat. is very well. There you go. You're already benefiting from the holiday. That's that is very nice. Okay. Yeah. I, I got her a book about feral cats because we've, oh. we've we've just we've just got our, we've just got our cat a cat. So our cat is incredibly sociable, very ridiculously sociable, like a dog. Okay. It has, has to be entertained. So we got him a cat. It's his cat. But we can't touch it. It's feral. It won't let us touch it. But but they're they're okay with each other. They're with each other, yeah. So it, but it's his cat. So my cat has a cat. And, um, <laughs> and that's all going very well. He doesn't pester us anymore for attention or anything like that. He's got his cat that he can basically like dominate. That's uh, a very cat thing to do. That is yeah. very this whole cool. situation is a very cat thing to do. 
Um, I might keep that cat, by, that by cat anecdote in the in the start here. I think that's a, a good one. Oh, diva, this is how we go from single cells to people. Every generation and in life primeval. Life in variations and the sand beautiful. From Devo to Evo, I've a mosquito. Acapella Science. Do, do, do.